pushed it away. <laughs> it's okay. Good evening, ladies. It's nice to see you all here tonight. And how many of you were able to come to our Jonah study? Very good. So we are doing the three, third and fourth chapter of Jonah. So um, I hope that what the Lord has given me ministers to you. The Lord is the ultimate storyteller, and there's no greater story to tell than that one that leads you to the cross. The best stories are always true stories or those that teach truth. The book of Jonah is both. Here's a short recap of chapter 1 and 2. God called Jonah to go on a mission of mercy and to cry out against Nineveh, warning them God could see their wickedness. God said, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. That's in Jonah 1, 2. To God's command, Jonah goes in the most opposite direction from the place God wants him to be. He goes to Joppa, where he buys a passage on a ship going to Tarshish. But God prepares a storm and a fish to redirect his life and put him in a place to think about his actions. After three days and three nights inside the valley of the fish, Jonah prays to the Lord, and the last verse in chapter 2 says, so the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry ground, dry land, I'm sorry. I wanted to go over a couple of thoughts from Titus 2 that Judy did for us. The first one was that the fish, in order for the fish to vomit Jonah onto dry land, it had to beach itself, much like a whale. And... Um, and how that correlated with Jesus' resurrection from the dead. That it took away the power from, that took away the power from, of death for us, like the fish being dead was powerless to ever bring death to anyone again. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 tells us, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? I love that picture and it brought the wonder of what Jesus did for us to the story of Jonah. The second thing that Judy said that stuck out to me was that, and it's not a biblical reference, but Judy made a statement in her overview. The place Jonah despised became the place of his bones. That means that now Jonah's enemies, even in death, did not want to be separated from him. That reminded me of a story of Dr. Livingstone. He was a missionary, an explorer, and a doctor and was instrumental in ending the slave trade in Africa. When David Livingstone passed away from malaria and dysentery, Britain requested to have his body shipped back for a proper burial in honor of all his accomplishments. Although the African people were unwilling at first, they did send his body back to Britain, but attached to his body, they sent a note that said, you can have his body but his heart belongs to Africa. They had taken his heart out and buried it in Africa. Before we knew Jesus, like the Ninevites to Jonah, we were God's enemies. Colossians 1, 21, 22 says, 
And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through, the, through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. And Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Whereas the Ninevites held on to the dead bones of Jonah, because of the cross, we have become the place of the living Christ. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, it says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And in Hebrews 13.5, For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This tells us that we will never have to be separated from the one who brought us the message of grace and truth and saved us from our judgment, Jesus. There are five more times, these are five more times where we are told God will not forsake us. Deuteronomy 4.31 For the Lord your God is merciful, and he will not forsake you nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant of your fathers which he swore to them. Deuteronomy 31.6 Be strong and of good courage, do not fear nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Deuteronomy 31.8 And the Lord, he is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. Joshua 1.5 No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. And as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. And 1 Corinthians 8.28 And David said to his son Solomon, Be strong and of good courage, and do it. Do not fear nor be dismayed, for the Lord my God will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you until you have finished all the work for the service of the house of the Lord. To forsake means to leave, to lose, to depart, leave behind, to leave in a given condition or a situation, to leave undisturbed, to let alone, to abandon. We saw in the first two chapters as God, we saw this, that God did not forsake Jonah. Although Jonah was trying to run from God, God would not abandon Jonah, and he will not abandon us either. 2 Timothy 2.13 tells us, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Now we're going to go into Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. We see this chapter starts off like chapter one with the word of the Lord coming to Jonah, and we are told it is a second time. What a wonderful God that we have, that even though Jonah acted on his feelings and his heart was not right, and Jonah was going to act on his feelings and his heart would not be right again, um, and God would... The word of the Lord still comes to Jonah and speaks to him as the first time. 
Notice God didn't tell Jonah, I'm giving you a second chance. Those were Jonah's words. Um, remember, this is a first-hand account from Jonah. He wrote the words second time. I believe God wanted Jonah to know he was still his messenger. Romans 11, 9, 29 says, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God had called Noah, um, Jonah <laughs> to go to Nineveh, and through God's mercy, Jonah would fulfill his calling. This scripture is very special to my heart, and that's why the words a second time stood out to me. When I first started um, writing songs and poetry, I gave some of my things to the worship leader, some of my songs, and um, I was waiting for him to call me or talk to me or acknowledge me in church, but he never noticed me. He never talked to me after that. He said, yes, I'll read them, and, and then that was the end. And time kept passing, and I kept beating myself up for doing it. And there came a time when something happened in my life, which I can't even remember because those things, I guess, are not that important. I just remember that I was so distraught and um, angry at myself and I thought God would never use me again. God would never speak to me again. And I was in a lot of despair, and I was mopping the kitchen floor. The phone rang, and this was six months after I had given him the poems. And it was the worship leader. And he thanked me for what I had given him. He was leaving the church. So he had to clean his desk, and that's where he found my writing. He hadn't seen it for six months. It's the first time he looked at it. So all the time I was thinking, he was looking at me and going, oh, there she is. Um, he, he didn't even know anything. But that day, I needed somebody to call me and to talk to me. And as he told me, the poem that ministered to him the most was the one that I thought was the worst. Um, he was crying. He said it made him cry. It really touched his heart. And it really ministered to him at that time that he needed to be ministered to. And then I started crying and told him how I was feeling and that I didn't think God would ever use me again. And he gave me that scripture. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. If he gave you something to do, no matter when he gave it to you, if that is still on your heart, that call isn't gone, and neither is the gift. And it is a gift. So that was so special, and that's why when I saw this, I said, that's not God telling him that. He's telling us that. This is the second time. And he, God just speaks to him as though nothing ever happened. Psalms 103.11 11 through 12 says, oh, I forgot to tell you, his name was Dave Messenger, and he was my messenger that day. <laughs> Psalm 103, 11 through 12. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. In Jonah's prayer in chapter 2, 
He remembered the Lord and his mercy, and the Lord met him there because that's where he meets us, ladies, when we are alone with him in prayer. I'm sure when Jonah came out of that fish, he had the fear of God in him. Jonah wanted death, but God wanted life for Jonah. In the fish, in that fish, God, Jonah found out that God was in control, not himself. Jonah shows his, his repentance and faithfully delivers God's message. He now truly understood the words of Psalm 119.67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. God was calling on Jonah to be an obedient messenger. In God's message to the Ninevites, he was also calling to them. He didn't say repent or else. He said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, exclamation point. I'm not sure if that was really the Lord's, I want to talk to you this way, but it's there. That's the way Jonah said it. He was calling the people of Nineveh to understand there was a God of judgment and he could see them. He used different words, but it was the same meaning as the first cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. The Lord is always the same. He wants us to know him like Hagar in Genesis 16, 13. She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees. Alroy, literally the living one that seeth me. Jonah's calling and the Ninevites' calling were the same, to acknowledge the living God who saw them. Jeremiah 10.10 10 says, But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth will tremble and the nations will not be able to endure his indignation. When the Lord speaks and calls us, he is looking at how we respond. Um, I wanted to take a minute to talk about a little bit about Noah. During In the children's ministry, we are studying about Noah. We're going to have four weeks of Noah and the flood. What in, in the, when God looks at the earth and he's going to destroy the earth and makes him sorry he's made men, it's not like because, ugh, I'm sorry I made you. He's looking at them saying, I'm so sorry I made you because their hearts were rotten. They were rotten. They could no longer look to him and listen. They couldn't look to him and find grace in his eyes. They couldn't um, acknowledge him anymore, and he knew that. They, they, they would never change. They couldn't repent because they couldn't hear. And like a doctor looking at somebody that he's feeling sad that he's going to have to cut your arm off, that it's rotten. That was the Lord as he came and he said that. And then it said, but Noah found grace in his eyes. And that, when we were, I was listening to John Corson to send to the teachers, that didn't mean God looked down and said, I'm going to give him grace. It meant that um, Noah was looking up. He could hear him. And in his eyes, he saw grace. 
sometimes people look at God and they see judgment. And that is Jonah. He sees a God of judgment, or he wants him to be a judge of God of judgment. But he found grace in his eyes, and that's what we want to be able to look and see, that God is a God of grace. Now we're going to read Jonah 3, 5 through 10. So the people of, this is the response, this is what God is looking for. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by decree of the king and the, his nobles, saying, Eat, Let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let the men and beasts be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works and they turned from their evil way and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. In verse 5, notice it doesn't say the people believed Jonah because of the way he looked. Or, nor does it say they heard about this great prophet being vomited out of a great fish. It says the people of Nineveh believed God. Think about it. It was an immediate response, not to run from God, but to bow to God. They were humbling themselves before the word of God. Hebrew 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the divisions of the soul and the spirits and the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The word of God changes the heart. They could have said the word of, of Isaiah 22:13 instead. Let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. And a lot of times when you tell people about the Lord and that he is the judge and that he will judge, they might say, okay, we'll party in hell. That's kind of what this is. We'll eat, drink, and be merry. But that's not what they did. But they instead believed what God said was true. Jesus in Matthew 12, 20, 41 and Luke eleven thirty two said, The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. Sharing the gospel doesn't depend on what we look like or who we are. We don't give power to the gospel. It gives power to us. 1 Corinthians 1, 17, 18 says, Preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
From the least to the greatest, they fasted, humbled themselves, and cried to God, and repented. They turned from their evil way. Notice that the king makes a statement using the words of David in 2 Samuel 12, 22. Who can tell? David was praying for the life of his child. This was the consequence of his sin with Bathsheba, which resulted in the murder of Uriah. David said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? The king of Nineveh was trusting the outcome of himself and his people to the same gracious God David trusted in for the child's outcome. For David, his child died, but the outcome would be different for the Ninevites. Verse 10 says, God saw their works and they turned from their evil way and God relented from the disaster he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Like Noah, then at that time, the uh, like Noah, the people believed God and found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Again, we see God, the God who sees. He saw their repentance by what they did, and they did not and did not destroy them. The Ninevites acted on what they heard showing faith. James 2.29 says, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. So does that mean that David didn't have enough faith that his child would live? In 2 Samuel 12, we are told David did all the same things as the Ninevites. He cried out to the Lord, he wept, he fasted, he humbled himself, and he repented. But God did not relent and spare David's child. Faith is not based on, based itself on the idea that if we do all the right things, God is going to answer our prayer the way we want him to. Our God is sovereign. He has the right to do as he pleases. Psalms 115.3 says, but our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Faith is not belief in an idea of what will happen. It is the total truth trust in the personal character of God to do what is right. That's why in all his trials, Job could say, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, Job 1.21. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, we're told, in everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ for you. Does this mean that David did not grieve and mourn? No. Accepting God's will is not always easy, but it is always right. David continues to put his trust in the Lord, and in an act of faith, David said, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. In 2 Samuel 12, 23, um, we read the reason God took the, the child. It said, however, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, to blaspheme the Lord. The child who is born to you shall surely die. And that was speaking evil of God. For um, however this was going to turn out later, the Lord knows, and we can trust his judgment for the things that he does, that he knows what he's doing. And David did. It seems like Jonah was more interested in seeing 
that his own desires happen than in understanding who God was. When I looked up the word relent, it means to become soft, to soften in temper, to become less severe, to melt. In the Amplified Bible, it says, and the Lord saw their works and they turned and they turned from their evil way, and God revoked his sentence of evil, and he said that he would do not do that he would do to them, and he did not do it, for he was comforted and eased concerning them. He took back his judgment. To revoke means to annul, to take back. To annul means to make something legally invalid. This is not what Jonah wanted to happen. Jonah's response was much different to all of this. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry, so that he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know you are gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life, for it is better for me to die than live. Eek. The first thing I want to point out is that what pleased God and softened his heart displeased Jonah. They were on two different pages. Warren Wearsby wrote this. For the second time in this account, Jonah prayed, but his second prayer was much different in content and intent. He prayed his best prayer in the worst place, the fish's belly, and he prayed his worst prayer in the best place at Nineveh, where God was working. His first prayer came from a broken heart. But his second prayer came from an angry heart. In his first prayer, he asked God to save him. But in his second prayer, he asked God to take his life. Once again, Jonah would rather die than not have his own way. Where God's heart became soft, Jonah's heart became hard. Secondly, God doesn't say, Jonah, stop it. I'm tired of this. I'm rejecting you now. Fine, you want to die, die. But that's something I might say when somebody's acting like this with me. <laughs> um, instead, God asks him a question. Then the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? And I'm sure God said that in love. He is calling Jonah to search his heart, but instead Jonah walks away without a response. Much like Pharaoh, Jonah felt like he didn't have to listen to God. He had a hardened heart of pride. Verse 5 says, So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city, where he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade until he might see what would become of the city. Although Jonah walks away without a verbal response to God, his actions continue to show his hardened heart as he hopes for his own outcome. Verse 6, And the Lord prepared a plant and made it come over Noah. I'm sorry, Jonah. 
<laughs> that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm, and it so damaged the plant that it withered. And ha it happened that the sun rose, and God prepared a venomous east wind. And the sun beat on Jonah's head, so it grew faint. He grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, It is better for me to die than live. Hmm. Jonah goes from grateful to angry every time his circumstances change. He's more interested in his own comfort than the lives of the repented people of Nineveh. Jonah had his eyes on the world instead of on the Lord. When our eyes are on the world, we react like the world reacts. Colossians 3, 1 through 3 says, If you are risen in Christ, seek those things that are above where Christ is. Sitting at the right hand of God, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden in Christ in God. I want to point out that Jonah could have changed his own circumstances. He had that power. He could have gotten up and moved, but he didn't. Just like he didn't want to tell God he was wrong and he was sorry. The word misery here is the same word in Hebrew used in Jonah 1-2 of the Ninevites' wickedness. God was still working with Jonah even in his sin. Interestingly, Jonah was very grateful for the plant, but not grateful for the Lord whose grace gave him the plant. I believe the plant and the worm and the venomous wind and even the sun were all ways to remind Jonah again that he was not in control, especially of life and death. When God said to Jonah, verse 9, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? He said, it is right for me to be angry even to death. But the Lord said, you have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not have pity on Nineveh, that great city, in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right and their left hand and much livestock? We see here that Jonah's, that Jonah, for Jonah, temporal things for his own comfort were much more important than eternal things. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18 says, For our light affliction is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceedingly and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary but the things which are not seen are eternal. The living God who saw Jonah was still concerned with his heart. The things that brought him discomfort were to make him aware of his own sinful condition. God ends with a question, but that question is for us. Do we treat others as God has treated us? with forgiveness and grace 
or do we decide who deserves it? Is our heart opened for the call of God, or is it hardened? When we are in a dark place, do we remember salvation is of the Lord? Are we counting every time we fail and doing the same to others? When we talk to others about their failures, do we talk in anger or in love? Are we interested in our comfort and our happiness or in bringing glory to God? Are we responding to the word of God or are we reacting to our feelings? Do we run from God or do we bow to God? So where is the cross in Jonah? Without the cross, this story could not have taken place. The story is about the just judge who sees and chooses to give mercy instead of judgment. Jonah believes he is right and God is wrong and justice has failed. But has justice failed? When we cry for justice, we expect three things to happen to the guilty. First, there needs to be retribution. The person who is guilty should get what they deserve. They should, should somehow be punished, a fine, sent to prison, or death. Secondly, it should be a deterrent. We should punish them to discourage other people from doing the same thing. Otherwise, everyone will do it. And lastly, um, rehabilitation. We want to change their behavior. We want to see their behavior cured. You need all three of these for justice to truly take place. Deuteronomy 2, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 32.4 says, He is the rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are just. He is a God of truth and without injustice. Righteousness and upright is he. God upholds justice, and it is so important. In the world, to exercise mercy, you do it at the expense of justice. When a judge pardons somebody, it's, ex it's at expense of something. And it's not justice. God isn't like that. But God is gracious and compassionate. He looks at every human heart. He sees what is there, and he's, he says that is wrong. And then he is moved in the depth of his being to do something about it, and that is the cross. We just taught the children about the two hearts and that our heart is bad. We can't do anything about it. So God stepped down and did it for us. At the cross of Jesus Christ, he united himself with us, takes our punishment, fulfills, and the, re fulfills the requirements of justice, and having fulfilled their requirements, God can exercise his mercy through his justice, annulling our judgment legally. 
Through the cross, God extended forgiveness to all people in all places at all times for those who repent and believe. God is eternal, and he sees everything all at once. And it says that Christ was slain from the foundations of the world. It happened before it started. It covered the Ninevites. There was no injustice there. Um, through the cross, we can say, like Jonah, salvation is of the Lord. Here's some thoughts to think about. A plant, it said. This was the only time in the Bible this particular word for plant was used. It was a gourd. They think it might be the castor oil plant. It's only mentioned in this book, but it's mentioned five times. Five times is the number of grace. It's a plant that only that has a two-year cycle, and then it dies. The first year it grows, the second year it, it flowers and gives whatever they give. <laughs> um, it's a beautiful plant. It's quick to grow with a soft, succulent stalk. A slight in, and a slight injury in it will cause the plant to die. That's why the worm was able to make it die. But in Isaiah 52, um, 53.2, it says, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. That shade over his head was the Lord. Then he said, a worm. This is the same word used in the Messianic Psalm um, 22 of the Messiah crucified. It's um, 22, 6 through 8. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake their heads, saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he has delighted in him. The other worm that it talks about in the Bible is the scarlet worm. And it's the worm that they would make the color scarlet, and they use that worm to dye the threads in the tabernacle and on the high priest's robe. Every time they said the thread, the scarlet thread, it was from that worm. And it says, when the female worm of the scarlet, when the female of the scarlet worm species is ready to give birth to her young, she would attach herself, her body to a trunk of a tree fixing herself so firmly and permanently that she would never leave again. Her eggs deposited beneath her body were thus protected until the larvae were um, hatched and would be able to enter their own life cycle. As the mother died, the crimson fluid drained from her body and, and the surrounding wood. From the dead bodies of such females, scarlet worms, the commercial scarlet dyes of antiquity were extracted. What a picture this gives of Christ dying on the cross, shedding his precious blood that he might bring many sons unto glory. Hebrews 2.10, he died for us 
that we might live through him. He was the worm, the east wind. The east wind came through God. God, through Moses' hand, brought judgment on the Egyptians by the east wind in Exodus 10.13. And in Exodus 14.21, the same east wind for the Israelites divided the Red Sea as they walked through the dry land to freedom. The same wind. The fish. Okay, the fish is a little different <laughs> because it's the symbol of Christianity. Okay, Jonah was acting like a fish out of water, just trying to save his life, flipping and flopping. Okay, the old, the the fish was more obedient than Jonah. God said, "Vomit him out this time," and he did. The fish did it. Mark 1, I'm sorry, it's a, Mark 1 said, Mark 1, 17, then Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. This was a flip in the story that the fish had the man instead of the man having the fish. And that's what God, Jesus told us. If the fish had died, like Judy was saying, that Jonah might live, it could be, a picture of the old man and the new man. Romans 6, 11. Likewise, you reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Had that fish not died, Jonah could not come forth. And if we do not die, like Jesus asks us to, the new man cannot come forth. When I used to teach um, high school um, children for a while in a private school I always told them salvation is free but it will cost you your life to follow Jesus don't forget that to count the cost Judy also made a comment that when she had after the study of Jonah when she opened her Bible because it was so hard to find it would just open to Jonah well, my Bible didn't do that. So I wanted to figure out how to find Jonah. So I started counting because it's, um, it's a minor prophet, which just means it's a short book. And the last major prophet is Daniel. So I counted from Daniel to Jonah. And it was five. One, two, three, four, five. Five, Jonah. And then I turned it the other way, and from Matthew to Jonah, it was eight, landed on eight. There's 12 minor prophets. Jonah's the fifth book from Daniel and the eighth book from Matthew. Five and eight equal 40. So if you remember the 40 days, 5 and 8 equal times, 5 times 8 is 40. Okay? 40 is not the number of judgment. It is um, probation, trial, and chastenment. It is the product of 5 and 8 and points to the action of grace 
leading and ending in revival and renewal. Here we find Jonah at the end of all this, where God placed him at the intersection where grace is given and new beginnings start at the foot of the cross. One last question. Is there a misery you don't want to get up and leave from? Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. Let's pray, ladies. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you care about us, that you work with us in our sin, that you died for us, that we might live, that in all of our ups and downs, you will not forsake us. I pray that we each hold this dear to our heart and we look to the book of Jonah with love and with awe at who you are and the wonder of your word and how you love us, Lord, and how you sacrificed your son so you could take us into your heart and make us part of your body. We praise you tonight, and we give you all the glory. We ask this in Jesus' name.